Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. All right, everybody. We're in Vayahi, uh, which is the, uh, the tale, the ending of the book of Genesis today. Genesis 47, verse 28, that travels through the end of the book, through chapter 50. So first of all, uh, let's move forward to this a little bit, because most people's interests seem to focus around Jacob's blessing slash cursing, because some of them really aren't all that great. Um, we'll go through as we get there. So first of all, uh, obviously, Jacob has, has called his brother, his, sorry, his son, uh, Joseph, to him, and has blessed Ephraim Manasseh. This is an important uh, step or important moment in history as far as what's happening here, because we know, as was explained to us both at this time, uh, for uh, for Jacob's blessings, and later on, it's reiterated again in the roll count or the the genealogy and in and ownership of of or, or rulership, we should say, of the tribes a few hundred years later. That Reuben, though he is biologically the firstborn son, screwed that up. Uh, he lost that right as firstborn, meaning the birthright, not the firstborn biologically, but as far as the birthright that goes with it. And those who don't recall, the Torah explains what a birthright is. A birthright is a double portion over your brothers. So in this instance, Jacob, of course, takes uh, uh, Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, or Ephraim Manasseh, and bless them as his own sons. So Jacob, sorry, Joseph, I should say, Joseph received a portion in that capacity, and that each of his sons will receive an inheritance from their father, Jacob, not necessarily like financial inheritance, but as far as you know, property or territory inheritance. And on top of that, the, the blessings he gives to both Jacob's sons, uh, of course, are significantly larger or more significant than the amount he gives to any of his other sons. So each son not only got a double blessing in the form of each, that, that Jacob, sorry, Joseph gets a double portion of each son, each of those blessings of those sons was also greater independently than all of those as well. So they got a significant blessing in this one. But Jacob, of course, uh, tells Joseph, first of all, you're going to bring me home back to where I belong, where you're buried. Uh, Jacob does not wish you buried in Egypt, which is fine. Uh, but of course, as you will note here, there's a, a, a brief exchange between them and that Jacob requires Joseph to swear to him or give an oath that he will bring his body out and that the, the, the um, uh, Jacob's assurance of saying, I'll personally do as you said it in verse 30, that's not good enough. Uh, so Jacob made sure Joseph actually had to swear that he would do it. And so, of course, he swore he would have to do so. That is beneficial on Joseph's side. He can tell Pharaoh, hey, my dad made me swear to do this. Because, mind you, Pharaoh, the Egyptians not care for Canaanite territory or Canaanites in general. So if you go to Pharaoh and say, well, I'm going to go marry buried in, Egypt, or in Canaan, say, what's wrong with Egypt? We're better than they are. What's wrong with you? I don't like you anymore. Go away. Uh, you wouldn't want, you wouldn't want to argue or fight with Pharaoh because he disdains the same the Canaanites. 
But having said, hey, my dad made me swear to do this. Not that Egypt's better or worse. Okay, it's better or worse. But dad made me swear I have to do it. Okay, fine. So Pharaoh's more likely to relent. So the benefits to Joseph that Jacob made him swear in that capacity. We usually don't swear in that swear generally, but as far as that, that's that's what he was doing. It was very helpful to him. Uh, of course, he points out here that the, one of the additional portions that Jacob gives to Joseph, of course, is the land of the city of Shechem. Now, at this time in history, as far as Joseph, Jacob is speaking, he has no clue which tribe will inherit what section of land. He doesn't know where Judah is going to be. He doesn't know where Benjamin is going to be, or Ephraim, or Manasseh, or who's going to get what part of land. He has no knowledge of that. But regardless of who gets what inheritance, this city, Shechem, which he says he fought, got with his bow, which actually his two sons did, but uh, Shechem is being given to Joseph's descendants. And of course, it winds up being Ephraim who actually takes possession of it. But he's making sure that if, even if you're in northern Israel or, or northern territory or in the southern desert, that city is yours. That in its surrounding territory is yours. So that was a promise given to him, uh, which is which is, as I mentioned before, both Levi and uh, Simeon are the ones who took it, but they took it and they were under their father's household. So it, it belongs, even though they're the ones who did the physical work, it belongs to their dad. He was, they did it in, in his, and they honor the defense of his daughter, not, their, not just their sister. Okay, so uh, the other details here, there is a few components here as far as the blessings he gives to Ephraim Manasseh. As it mentions here, he puts Ephraim, the younger one, above Manasseh. That was not Joseph's intent. That was obviously Jacob's intent. Uh, that was obviously Joseph's intent. Uh, sorry, Jacob's intent in order to, to bless the, the younger one over the, the older one. Uh, it is debatable as far as what that means, and people debate, oh, well, it's because this or that reason or whatever. It doesn't really matter what the reasons are. Uh, the bottom line, that's what he did. And in doing so, he made sure that, as he mentioned here uh, in verse, let's see, verse uh, uh, 15 and 16, uh, more, particular, more, more in particular, 16, I mean, the angel who, who, who redeems me from all, redeems me from all evil, bless the lads, may my name be declared upon them, the names of fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they proliferate abundantly like fish within the land. So he is taking the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and himself, in particular, putting those three patriarchs upon these two boys. He did not do so upon his other sons. So the, 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 the fame and the, the, the prosperity, the success of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was being transferred to Ephraim and Manasseh over the other sons. And that implies, since we already know and have studied uh, Esau and we studied Jacob and we studied Isaac and we studied uh, Ishmael, that that blessing of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob upon those two sons means the blessing of God and ownership or the, the, the inheritance of God himself put upon those two sons. As uh, far as what that means, you can argue it, but that's, that's what that term has been leading up to this point in Genesis. Uh, see, this question of this topic is pretty straightforward as far as, as, far as how the blessing and such uh, and what they go. In Israel today is still, traditions today is still to bless, may you be blessed at Ephraim Vanessa. Uh, be fruitful and, and success and, and multiply you. Any questions about this so far? Because we're going to the blessing section 
or, or some argue cursing section of the individual tribes themselves. Uh, so anything, any questions leading up to this blessing section? All right. So then we'll go with some interesting uh, word choices and such. Chapter 49. <clears throat> now, some of your translations will use strange words here that are done into English. They're not wrong, but they aren't right either. All right? So, for example, uh, verse 1. <laughs> for Jacob called his sons and said, Assemble yourselves, and I will tell you what will befall you in the end of days. And those of you may have different books and different translations of different Bibles open to this scripture, this passage. Um, some of them will phrase uh, what will happen to you at the end of days or what's going to occur, or what's the lines as far as something occurring to you at the end of days. We have a few details here that you should know about. First of all, end of days, what is that? Do we have a mental concept of what end of days means? What is it actually? So, with the end of days, we're referring to a time period that is not then, not at Jacob's time, and not necessarily, though it can be, at Messiah's time. End of days is the end of days for time for judgment when you were called to God. That the end of days is a phrase meaning. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to die. It doesn't mean when you were called to God. You be called to God physically, like while you're still flesh and blood human being, or spiritually when you're dead or your spirit. That makes a difference. End of days is what your end of days happens to be. So when you deal with end of days, in this phrase terminology is usually throughout the prophets in particular, is focused on the time which Messiah is not the first visit, but rather his second visit. His second time round, when he's actually in charge of everything. And he's the one who's calling you. Or he's the one who's dealing with you. That's the end of days he's referring to most often throughout our, our prophets. So I believe since Jacob happens to be an individual who has had prophetic image, uh, dreams from God, and he understands and interprets dreams fairly well, I believe he is a prophet in his own right. Meaning that God has spoken to Jacob at, in, during his lifetime to give him information that allowed him to go through his life successfully. That's my opinion. Uh, based upon the dreams that Jacob had received, the explanations God spoke to him in those dreams, as well as the events that Jacob experienced, as well as his ability to interpret Joseph's dreams while Joseph was a young lad. He understood, he interpreted them for Joseph on Joseph's behalf. So Jacob's ability to prophesy, I think, is fair to say, I believe he was a prophet. You may disagree, but that's okay. So in this, when he's saying, will befall you the end of days, referring to your time period, what's going to happen in, in the future. To his future, we don't know if it's our future, but at least his future in particular. And his future referring to the end of days, the end of time which you are counting. This we typically count the time which which God has returned to God's on earth, uh, or Messiah's in charge. <clears throat> there is a word screw up in this sentence. Um, the Hebrew word that says what will befall you, befall. That is not the spelling, the Hebrew word for that is, that is not the spelling for befall. It's not the spelling for what will happen. The Hebrew word there, spelling is what will call you, as in 
the words spoken or what's what your title identification name will be so in this hebrew phrase it actually states assemble yourselves i will tell you what will call you in the end of days what does that mean well okay we have to understand the term hebrew phrase for call um much like english it actually is used very similarly it has the ability to identify as your name i'm calling you uh, larry or howard or jeff as well as your reputation when i say larry or jeff or howard or or deborah or tammy there is not just a name to that there is a history behind who you are right there's a record of what exists your who you have been up till now defines what i know of you right or what anybody knows of you who you have been so what you call you is also a record of you what the, what your history will be what you have experienced what you are known for not just your name but your reputation your identity what's like you i would argue also your character the nature of who you are what you have done in your past present and what you're going to do in your future this is your identity now we can debate what these identities mean and what the 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 details behind them but this is the reputation jacob saying sons i know you this is your character of what you will be your sins will be known for when messiah when messiah is here when he's ruling this earth first son reuben so Reuben is impetuous, unstable, uh, uh, unable to be uh, 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 steady or consistent or impulsive, is impulsively driven. Uh, see this hallmark of Reuben's descendants will be this, this, this impulsiveness or uh, instability uh, to, to either uh, uh, to be consistent in anything that they, they function on. Now, if we go through our Tanakh and study Reuben, not just this 12 portion here in Genesis, but later on his descendants, there is certain characters or traits you will note uh number one the most famous one remember chorus rebellion who were the two sons uh, that joined him reuben's descendants reuben's sons joined him so reuben's descendants were originally for moses and then the opportunity arose that oh we can be in charge moses kill it is that a trustworthy characteristic trait no that is someone who is only interested for themselves not only at that instance the second most important event was deborah and barack those remember deborah and barack's rebellion against the the uh the uh the canaanite territories canaanite people the big big battle there reuben was called hey reuben come to war with us fight with us and help us out and Deborah Brock replied what the reply the response we gave them was, yeah, well, I'll think about it. I'm not sure I feel like it right now. Right. They're emotional, feeling driven. What is my desire at this moment in time? Uh, they and of course uh, they, they they said to have is as Deborah points out, they have a great searching of heart. Their heart is screwed up. They are doing what is most advantageous for them at that moment in time of their impulse. As Jacob says, you are impulsive. So in the time which will come, as Jacob points out, these we the, the assembly of nations, multiple nations. So the time Messiah shows up, this tribal group 
will be known on Messiah's day, apparently not just by Messiah himself, but apparently people around, because this, this, these blessings are inclusive of natures of people that they, that they are around or surrounded by. They are known for impulsive behavior, inconsistency, not dependable. Uh, that is the nature of that particular nation or tribal group. Um, in my personal opinion, by the way, I use the word nation, tribal group interchangeably because they have the same thing. So today we have national borders, which is perfectly fine. Child groups are in those national borders. I do realize some nations are a, a hodgepodge mix of different groups, but still they have national border. So in this tribal nation, uh, there is a Reuben, Reuben's uh, character trait that we called or be known for. His most famous character trait would be his instability, inconsistency, not dependable. The second son, Simeon and Levi, second, second and third sons. Um, and this is interesting. Simeon and Levi, they're, as it points out, their weaponry, is, they, they, their weapon is, a, is a, by text, a stolen craft, of course, weapon of, of, of pain or misery. Uh, in their conspiracy, my soul, I enter with their congregation to join my honor for their raids, the murdered people, which are referring to the, the, the town of Shechem. And at their whim, they hamstring an ox, a cursed rage for his intents, the wrath for it is harsh. I will separate them within Jacob. I will disperse them in Israel. So this verse is actually uh, very helpful in certain components that the way which God distributed or separated Simeon and Levi was pretty straightforward. He didn't have to disperse both tribes in Israel. All he had to do was disperse one of them. Because it says their council, which they're grouped together, conspiracy as a team, divide that up. If you have a team, if you take one part away, it's no longer a team. And that's what God did. He didn't have to disperse Simeon, which he, some argue he did, but he really didn't. Simeon had their own territory. But Levi was broken apart and spread out throughout all the, the different tribes. So Levi, that implies here, will not be receiving or have a nation of his own. He'll be scattered about. Simeon, of course, may still have his own nation, but he will not be bonded together with Levi. So in this instance, we would look Simeon, at least, who's still around. His, 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 his desire, or as he's known for, their, their, their murderous tendencies, their anger, or their, their, their intense will to cause harm to someone else. Now, we know the story of Simeon a little bit. Uh, which, of course, had a home of his own, which he'll be, he'll be he get it within inside of the territory of, Drew, of uh, Judah. But much of Simeon, of course, went north when the tribes split apart. Uh, Simeon's primary leader, one of the things they're famous for, uh, was slaughtered by Phineas, who was also Levite. So the Levite went up, Levi went against Simeon uh, when they slaughtered Cosby and the, the leader of Simeon, I think it was Zimri, I think it was his name was, uh, in a tent. So God separated Levi and Simeon with not just in dispersing Levi, but also in an animosity toward one another. The both, both brothers disliked each other at that point on Levi against Simeon. Because Jacob's discussion, of course, the combination of both brothers, not the individuals. So whatever nation the, the Messiah's time period correlates to Simeon is going to be one that apparently is, is somewhat uh, warlike or very, very angry-based individuals, groups, or tribal, tribal group. Uh, Judah, of course, pretty obvious. We have the blessing that, God, that he's given to Judah uh, as far as his, his brothers being acknowledged him. Even in modern day today, you will note that Judah, which is pretty obviously associated with the, with the city or the nation, sorry, not city, the nation of Israel itself, which is dominantly from that tribe. They're obviously scattered amongst others too, but that's not that tribe. 
it is still looked toward today. Note how many Christian nations pay attention to Israel. The vast majority. How many Muslim nations still pay attention to Israel? In the hatred form, but still the vast majority. So even in modern day today, Israel and Judah still takes preeminence amongst many nations, amongst many people groups. They still look at and look upon Judah as almost like a guide in many ways as what should or shouldn't be done and how to, how to take care of them and hear their words, their counsel. So even Judah today, modern day, thousands of years later, is still looked up to by all of his brothers, whichever brothers you think they are. Uh, Zebulun, of course, is another one. Now, Zebulun, you will have a, a, uh, uh, a screwy word choice. Screwy word choice. So Zebulun, the following, uh, sorry, before we go to Zebulun, uh, Judah gets to, he gets to maintain his dominance until, as it says, Shadow, which means the, the Messiah arrives. So Judah maintains his dominance until the Messiah arrives. And that's something that is, that is to note that Judah will continue to look, be looked toward or looked at or looked up to until Messiah arrives and takes his throne. So as we're going through uh, Genesis 49, we're going, we've, we've completed uh, the first few sons, first four sons. Zebulun, uh, this is where word choice is screwy. In verse 13 of 49, it says, Zebulun shall set up by seashores. He shall be at the ship's harbor, and his last borders will be will reach Zion or Sidon. Uh, this is a weird uh, word choice. That's not what the text says in Hebrew at all. Now, you can interpret the words that way if you wished to, but you are doing an interpretation. Uh, the word choice there, border, is thigh. It has been the word thigh, and in the book of Daniel, it the word thigh. It is the word thigh. Your thighs. Your thighs will be towards Saddam. Now, we may look at that and say, That's, what, what does that mean? Who cares? Well, there's a little bit of details about Zebulun itself. Uh, set up by the seashores, you will note that when Zebulun goes through a territory distribution, they actually don't get a seashore. They're, they are a landlocked tribe. They get a little bit of a border next with Israel. They have to share a section of the Gatsia Galilee, which is a small lake, but it's not actually a seashore. They don't get ships. But remember, Jacob's referring to these prophecies, focusing upon what his sons, what will happen by the time Messiah returns for us to rule or to control. This is what these sons will be known for. It means their descendants, their nation will be known for. So Zibion is a nation not necessarily during the inheritance phase, but the nation will be known as settling by its seashores. The nation will be known as a ship main ship's harbor. The nation will be known as thighs towards Sidon or Sidon. Um, now, this is the next question. Those of you who are familiar with Sidon, uh, I, I assume most of you have heard of the woman called Jezebel. Uh, she is from Sidon. That she is, that is one of the main characteristics trait people we have to go by we're discussing Sidon. So Sidonians, there is a, 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 a action not just in biblical history, but actually secular history. Sidonians were known for sexual promiscuity. Uh, that was their major export. We call it pornography today, but that was their export. They didn't have pictures, they had people they exported. Not the same difference. Um, that, is their, that, is their, that was their trade, that was their business that uh, was exporting that particular product. You can call it a product. So uh, when you say your thighs are towards Sidon or toward uh, this, 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 this particular town, this town was known for that export even during, during uh, before Abraham was around. 
it had been known that for that export business, that export business, uh, for even in Egyptian history, no, Sidon was in the export business of that particular uh, line, that product line. Uh, so when he says your thighs towards Sidon, and we discuss our Torah, our instructions for us, what Torah discusses, when it says thighs, so you'll swear, put your hand upon my thigh, as Abraham had, had his uh, servant Eleazar swear, and you will swear to me. And of course, Jacob does the exact same thing. Put your hand upon my thigh, you will swear to me. The hand upon the thigh is your uh, nether regions, your private areas. And so when he discusses your thigh be towards Sodom, there is something, a characteristic trait when you're saying to your son, son, your nether regions seem to be focused upon that pornography industry. So therefore, your descendants will be known for that. That's not say a, a blessing, that is a cursing in every measurable way. But that's what the words mean. In, now, it is frequently trans, it is word border, which is not the fair translation. Enzodon has been and probably always will be well known for Jezebel and their export of sexual promiscuity. So Zebulun, your sons, you, your descendants will stand by seashores. Your ships will be at the harbor of the ships will harbor you. They will go to you. They'll be a seafaring uh, nation, and they'll be known for sexual promiscuity or export of pornographic material and purchased products similar to Zebulun. I'm not telling you who it is in modern day world. I don't care who you think it is. What matters is what the text, what, what, what Jacob is, knows about his sons and their nature. Note, Moses had a somewhat similar description of Zebulun, uh, not, however, as a final end of days description, but he did have a similar description of Zebulun regarding seashore details. So there's something about both Moses and Jacob seem to have to know something about the descendants of Zebulun that is not uh, fully disclosed within our Tanakh. The following son, Issachar, strong bone, a strong donkey, or there's rest between the boundaries. Uh, he saw tranquility was good, the land that was pleasant, yet, uh, yet he bent his shoulder to bear. The bear became an indentured slave. We don't know what that means necessarily, but apparently whatever the indentured slave is, uh, Issachar appears to be someone who, to bear his bend his shoulder, which means he is implying, okay, there's a, there's a difficulty here on this side. Difficulty here on that side, I will be subservient to these difficulties. Um, now, as he's, if, he, if he's resting between two boundaries, that means there's a nation on one side of Issachar, a nation on the other side of Issachar, who don't necessarily like each other, but they put Issachar in subservience to them. Uh, so whatever, when Messiah shows up, Issachar will be known as a nation that is subservient to those that surround him. I can't tell you which nation it is, it's making a difference, but that's who, that is their calling card, their identity, when Messiah arrives. Uh, of course, for additional labor, he would be, be paying, paying these nations tributes to keep, leave himself alone. He's willing to compromise his sovereignty for peace, which, in my mind, you don't deserve peace if you, just, if you compromise your sovereignty, but that's my opinion. Let's move forward. So, Dan, the tribe of Dan, avenges people, tribes of Israel be united as one. Dan will be a serpent on the highway, a viper by the path, that bites a horse's heel, so its rider falls backwards. For your salvation do I long, Dan, O oh God. So in this instance, uh, we don't know the details of Dan, but whatever his people groups happen to be, uh, it, is, it is apparently their, 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 their history or their knowledge will be a viper in nature as far as injuring one who is greater than themselves. Note when you think of power as strength, you tend to think of horses, as our biblical instruction says. 
as we said, the kings will multiply horse themselves when they want power, strength, and, and dominance. Yes, what's your question? So Isaac had questions. So that would imply the nation of Dan will be a rather scrappy nation, and they'll take any advantage they possibly can get. Yes, that would be the implication. And that whatever nations are greater than, which we think of kings as great kings, as the Bible tells us, kings have multiply horses to show their power, as well as their gold to show power. Dan will not have that power, but yet he will still uh, harass or cause great harm to those nations in his scrappiness, in his nature of, of, of taking advantage you can get and, and, and stabbing the back kind of thing and run. Uh, and of course, it says, Jacob's apparently focused on Dan is your salvation do I long for? So Dan's uh, intent or his nature as far as being uh, 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 a, a, a aggressive uh, or, or in that format of, that Isaac went out, scrappiness, that is not necessarily beneficial to him. His, if, if Jacob is focused upon your salvation, and this is not a positive thing that you do, what you're doing is not necessarily good, but this is what you are known for. This is your historical identity, your calling card, your name, your character. Now, there are other characters, however, with regards to Dan. As you'll note, the most famous Danite in our Bible is Samson. Now, most people look at Samson. He's big, strong, big, muscle, muscle guy, right? The big, long hair, and he has issues with women that he's a little bit weak on. I'll say maybe more than a little bit. Um, one of Samson's characteristic strengths, what's so great about Samson? His physical strength, right? Or God. Was Samson, as you would Samson classify himself as being a great king with great master of lords in the form of horses? No, quite the opposite. He would use a donkey's jawbone, a scrappy thing we can find that's easily handleable. Take it, okay, bring it on, and just go whack and start killing people. Whatever is at hand, what is easily available, and that's what takes down that nation, which is greater than himself. And of course, Samson dies in that process. He himself becomes weakened until he dies when he finally takes the nation, not caring for his own well-being, but making sure at least you're going down with me. I'll take you down the process. So whatever the nation Dan is, whether you think it is, it doesn't matter. In the form of Messiah's Day, Dan will be that characteristic. That will be, that's what they are known for, a fighter, one who will fight to the very end with a, apparently a reasonably hot temper. So I don't know who that necessarily may be, but that's apparently has to be the nature of the Dan. When Messiah arrives, their character's trait, their calling card, their nature, their history will be that. Moving on to Gad. Now, Gad is a recruit regiment that will, that, that will, and will retreat on its heels. So uh, Gad has an interesting uh, debate as far as what nations those are and what nations they are not. But in this nature of Gad, he could be a recruiter regiment, which is a military campaign. So something about Gad, and of Gad, of course, is his title's namesake he got it when he was a boy, was, of course, the, the a troop has come and a great fortune has come. So Gad is associated with both military and fortune, meaning money. So in this instance, Gad, whatever the nation may be, it doesn't make a difference, uh, they'll be known for a military strength as well as its ability to push back on those who attack it or dominate it. But it can also mean economical, because it does that because Gad can be is fortune, also means the word fortune. So it doesn't have to be military. It can be a combination thereof. Either someone who is financially stronger than them and they are, are dominated, but then eventually they, be, they, they push them back or are able to triumph over them. Or it can be militarily that they are dominant, but eventually someone triumphs over them. 
Whatever it is, that is what they're known for. They're known for being dominated, crushed down, as the, your, some of your Bibles will say, a troop uh, a, a request, uh, crushed him or pushed over, overcame him, and then he was able to overthrow them or triumph them over the, at the end. So a group or a troop or another nation or nations dominated him, and he was able to push them off and recover. And that's what he was able to free himself so that nation has that famous, known-for events that occur in its history, in its calling card, its identity, character, when Messiah comes his second time. Wherever that nation may be. That is a lot of opinions on it, but I'm not going to discuss them all. And of course, we have the next blessing or curse, you could argue, uh, that uh, Jacob gives to his son in this Asher. Now, Asher's is a... <sighs> It is a heavily interpreted statement here. When I read this, I'll read to you anyway. Verse 20 says, From Asher, his bread will have richness, and he will provide kingly delicacies. Uh, so I say heavy interpretation here in this, in this word choice. But let's think about this for just a few minutes. This won't take long. It's, it's pretty obvious. Um, what, I, what I or you think of the word delicacies, I don't know about you personally, but me, I think delicacies, oh, like, here, have a pastry. <laughs> here, have a creme brulee. <laughs> I like delicacies as, as food-related delicacies. Um, that is not what a king would think of as delicacies. Uh, the term delicacies is the exact same Hebrew term, Hebrew word, also used for provide, who provide delight or delights, things that kings delight in. So somebody will say royal delicacy, though. It, it is the same phrase. It's completely identical, interchangeable in, in, in wording it. From Asher, his bread will, be, will have riches, will be fat, be wealthy, and he will give kings their delights. Well, okay, if we read it that way, I don't think of little crimble or little pastries. I think king's delights, well, what delights the kings? Golds, gold does, silver does, jewels do. Power and money does. That's what kings light in. Name a king who doesn't pursue those things. I'll show you a poor king. Um, kings like those things. That's what they pursue. That's what they're after. So look at the book of Asher. It's not book of Asher. The chat, the the the, 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 the the nation of Asher. Whatever the station is, when Messiah returns. Their calling card, their characteristic trait will be associated historically or or or, or at the time that. And apparently associated with things that kings like or kings or desire, kings desire or delight in. Kings delight in gold, delight in silver, delight in gems, diamonds, rubies. They delight in those objects. That's what kings pursue. If you're ever questioning that, simply read about King Solomon. If you're not sure, not sure what they like, read King Solomon. That'll give you a really good picture. What did King Solomon like? He liked exotic stuff. He liked gold. He liked silver. He liked jewelry. He liked women. He liked all the things he could get a hold of. But that was King Solomon. So Asher was known for the things that kings, not just one king, but all kings, seem to delight in or want or desire or enjoy. Kings pursue wars over money. So I'm suspecting it probably has to do with gold, silver, gems, stones, other, other precious diamonds and such. I don't know which nation that may be, but you can discuss it on your, on your own thoughts. Uh, verse 21, I like this verse because it is strange. I would also submit it could be other natural resources. You're right. It could be, it could be oil. It could be other resources of similar nature. 
and that it, that is based upon that that, that, that that kings are desiring in the form of money or something that, that gives them power. You can also argue, because kings like power too, not just money, that you can argue maybe humans or human beings. I don't know if at, I mean, the modern day slave trade's still alive and well in China, but I'm not sure about the rest of the country, or the rest of the world. Uh, it could be people, but I, 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 I question that as far as people is concerned. It has just something apparently with something that the kings desire in the form of power and in the form of money, apparently. People, the, the kings get power over by ruling people. They can get that in two ways, conquering them, acquiring this for the way by buying them, or financially overpowering them by just being really rich. Uh, let's see here. Let's see. Uh, so said, go, go on to chapter 20 or first 21. Sorry, I'm Naftali. Naftali is a, hi- this verse is a hind let loose who delivers beautiful sayings. That's rather cryptic because it doesn't mean a whole lot to any of us. At least not, at least not mean it to me. Maybe it's to you if you understand it. Let me know. Uh, but I will tell you this. Uh, what I do know, <laughs> Naftali is a hind let loose. Pause there for a minute. What is a hind? It's a female deer. A hind is not just any deer, it's a female deer. The term let loose, as has been described to me in another book, uh, let loose in the Hebrew phrase means a female deer in heat. Those who know what a female deer are, they're obviously animals that they'll have a little bit of baby deer, small fonts. <laughs> but a female in heat, what does a female deer in heat do? It attracts lots of male deer. I'm not sure if it attracts predators too, but I don't know. Uh, either way, so Naftali, it, this, this hind let loose is Naftali is a female deer in heat who delivers beautiful sayings. So I don't know what that means. I can't comprehend it very well. I don't, I don't, I don't understand it. But I'm letting you know that's the phrase is mean. So whatever nation Naftali represents, apparently their females are somewhat attractive to males. I don't know what's so special about it, but apparently maybe. Uh, and apparently not just any males, I'm guessing most males, because female deers attract almost all male deers, or even their own, even their own descendants will attract their own, their own sons will, will, will go after the female deer. What's um, like goats? It's kind of gross. Anyway, uh, so Natalia is known for apparently their females in heat. I don't understand that yet. Uh, maybe somebody else does. And it delivers beautiful saying. The beautiful sayings part, this is interesting. It does not necessarily mean that it, beautiful words like sort of songs. Beautiful sayings cannot, it does not have to be songs. You can have beautiful speeches, beautiful books written, beautiful commentary, the things that, that others are attracted to, not just themselves. Other people are attracted to what you produce in the form of either written word, published word, medias, some of the speeches given out, whatever the case, medias. These other words, media. I just spoke that word. Sorry about that, Jeff. Uh, so, media, uh, whatever uh, product you produce in the form of speech. The words being written apparently is desirable or needed or wanted by others. So in a nation this is, that is their characteristic trait. When Messiah shows up, that's what they're known for. And you can debate what that is. I, I, I can't answer it. it will, I, and I can narrow some things down for you in the form of what continents these are likely associated with, but not necessarily what nations they are. Okay, so that's as far as Naftali is concerned. So when Messiah shows up, these will be their calling cards. Let's move forward. Any questions about it is, it is, guys. Let me know. Oh, sorry. One more note. I forgot to mention about Naftali. Uh, Naftali has a long storied history. I forgot to mention that. Uh, so I, there's, all these guys have storied histories. But Naftali is probably the most documented historical nation, tribe, migration pattern in, uh, in any of the sons of Jacob, possibly with the exception of Judah himself. 
So I say positive because it may not be. Um, Naphtali, they are, the, the, those of you who know the history of our, of, of our Bibles, we know that Naphtali amongst all the northern tribes were captured by the Assyrians and scattered about uh, the, the territory of Assyria in different areas. Naphtali amongst all the tribes, Naphtali is the only one who kept its name. So everywhere they went, they named it after themselves. So it's called Naphtali. They also use the word Eftali, um, Nafta, <laughs> not Nafta's in the North American Trade Agreement. As far as they, they use variations of their name to name cities, uh, dwelling places, regions for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, they did that for over a thousand years, documentation of Naphtali tribe naming every place they went. Um, they, uh, the, the Romans finally pronounced, no one's pronounced their name as Eftali instead of Nafta. They dropped the N, replaced the N-A with an E sound. So Romans pronounced the name of Eftali, but it was also called them what we would know as called the White Huns. That was Romans' other name for the Eftali or the Naphtali group. And that, those, those migration patterns are known for, for, for generations. They're well-documented. Rome just, just plastered history about these white Huns because they were petrified to death of them. Not the rest of the Huns, not the, not the dark-skinned Huns that come from the Yod. We think of them as Hilda Hun. Those are, those were later. These are earlier groups. So the white Huns are fair-skinned people, that, they, but the Romans called them Eftali and white Hun. They use the term interchangeably between the, 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 the group. So apparently, Naphtali apparently has a history uh, of some form regarding the Romans were afraid of them. Uh, I can't say lots beyond that other than their history. And there's lots, lots of the Roman wrote, wrote about that. I'd like to discuss the Roman history. It's not, it doesn't interest me. Uh, let's see. So, Joseph, we go to Joseph. So, Joseph and Ephraim, as mentioned before, in the beginning of, of chapter 47, or sorry, maybe this Torah portion, end of 47 and early 48. Uh, Joseph got his two sons divided up amongst Jacob, but Jacob blessed both boys by crossing his hands, you know, the right and the left. He flipped them as far as uh, uh, Ephraim being greater than Manasseh and vice versa, as far as what, uh, what, uh, who, who's better and such, or who's more, more dominant or more, more, more impressive. He blessed Ephraim and Manasseh abundantly, said that he declared that both Abraham, Isaac, as well himself, all three of them, will be associated with these two boys and their descendants. I uh, also, if you look, if you read this, this text here given to us regarding Joseph, his brothers, which means the other tribes, will not like him. So other nations, apparently, when Messiah shows up, Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, will not be necessarily well-liked by any of his brothers. So the nations that are also listed here that we've gone through thus far are not necessarily going to like Joseph or Joseph's two sons, the two nations represented his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, but those two sons will still be dominant amongst all of them. And the other brothers who have fought against them will not succeed in their ability or attempt to dominate. Well, Joseph also is the, apparently his two sons are the wealthiest, most powerful of all of them, even in spite of the fact that they are not liked. Apparently their weaponry is says that his strength is studied in his bow is studied with these others who fought against him and they lose repeatedly. So whoever Joseph's sons are, they apparently are extremely strong and no one is able to outmaneuver them in their ability. Also, they are apparently exceptionally wealthy. They are, of course, as given here, the blessings of, of heaven above, from the deep crouching beneath below the earth, blessings of their bosom, the rooms are very populous, very, uh, very large in, in their capacity, and that no one can dominate. 
So when Messiah shows up, these two nations would be apparently the most dominant amongst the brothers, at least, with, with regards to the, the sons of Jacob. And they will still apparently look up to Joseph, like it or not, as it says, let him be upon Joseph's head, upon the head of the exile from his brothers. So all of them will look up, up to Joseph because he's still bigger, stronger, more wealthy than any of the rest of them. Now, Joseph gets a double portion, so apparently he's probably twice as wealthy as the rest of them. Uh, you could argue who that may be, what nation that they may associate with, but that's your decision of what you think and your viewpoint. Either way, in Messiah's day, this is what they'll be known for. This is their dominance, and the blessed Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will play upon them. And that blessing, of course, as mentioned before, apparently associates with God is with them, as far as the power of God with them and their strength. But not only that, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were known for their, uh, their, their 160-and-40-fold increase, as the reference Messiah uses later on during his parable. They are known for what they sow, they, ex- they reap exceedingly high or exceedingly great benefit back for whatever they do. Uh, the, 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 the whole Greek thing, the Midas touch. Uh, whatever they do, they're very good. And apparently both nations are divided into two people groups that still act like brothers. So they are not the same nation. They're two separate nations. But they act like brothers in this capacity. And they are both apparently are looked up to, but not in a ooh, admiring way, but rather as, as a resentful way of the other brothers because they're unable to dominate. They try, apparently. And of course, the last son, Benjamin. The last son, Benjamin, the end of days, he'll be known apparently for, this, 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 is, this is a strange description here, but it'll help give you some light, to, light shed upon it. Benjamin is a predatory wolf. In the morning, he will devour prey. In the evening, he will dispute, distribute the spoils. So in this, this uh, cryptic descri- description, does not mean a whole lot uh, as far as in and of its own? So I'm going to, by the way, discard the term wolf because it doesn't mean anything. It's just an animal. There is something about Benjamin that is predatory in nature. Well, if you, if you use other animals, you want to. Maybe it's a, a coyote. It doesn't make a difference. The point is, it's, it's a predatory nature. In the morning, he devours prey. In the evening, he'll distribute the spoils. So whoever Benjamin is, whoever nature represents to it, apparently he seems to be of a, a raider type of nation. And because what do wolves do? They raid opportunities. A coyotes do as well. But the wolf is actually... A, is a, now, I don't, know, I don't know for certain if Jacob was trying to imply, since wolf is a cold-weathered cold animal, whether Benjamin was, a, was, was in a cold area or not, I can't say. But because uh, I don't know if that was the intent, if that's going pretty deep into the metaphor. But either way, it is known for attacking without warning, because wolves will do that, hunting and a raiding type of mentality or process. So they are raiders in the morning. So they're known for their, either their, their identity as current raiders or past, I can't say. Besides time, they're known for this. They're ready to raid others or steal from others, plunder them, and then take it back home with their pack and divide it up. So I don't know who that necessarily would be, but uh, whatever nation it is, and apparently well known by the time Messiah shows up, that that is their, their calling card, their identity, their history, their, 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 their name, their character trait that identifies them as being a raiding type of warring nation or warring group of people groups. So these, of course, the, the blessing of these nations, these different, different uh, tribes, some of them are blessings, some of them, I would argue, are more of a curse rather than a bless. Because the nature of what some of these characters, these descriptions being be, being made uh, in this form of, in particular, Zebulun, that's kind of you know gross, but that's just Zebulun. Uh, anyhow, some of them are a little bit iffy, but that's what Jacob is giving. Now, Jacob, 
started out his, his oration about all these the blessings or cursings uh, upon these tribes. And this is what they will each be known for in their character or their calling card or their name, their identity, their, their historical reference. Uh, when Messiah arrives at the end of days to rule or take control of or, or dominate. Now, I mentioned before, I don't know what the nations are. You can debate what you think they are. A lot of people have, have a million and one opinions as far as what's what. And I can't say which right or what's wrong because I, I wouldn't know. If these are God, would know what these nations identify as. And of course, Jacob apparently knew what they identified as too, uh, but I don't. So you can debate what they may be. I will tell you a few things. You can narrow down your lists. So, whatever nations these guys are, they apparently seem to still be focused upon the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So whatever nations may be, you can debate what they may be, but they are, they are still focused because these blessings are coming from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to them. So apparently these nations still have some affinity, identity, association with, relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not just the God of Abraham, which Islam does. Not, not just uh, one of them, or even Esau, or, or Ishmael. It, 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 is, it is associated with these three sons, these three sons, these three patriarchs. All these nations have some affinity for, or some connection to, or some association with, that has bound them as brethren, even though they may not like each other. Because uh, some of them, apparently, in particular Joseph, they seem to do a lot of warring. And, uh, and so does uh, so do a few others. So they may not say like each other, they may fight at times. As we know in the story of history of Israel and Judah, which is part of the Bible, they fought all the time. They always fought. Yephthah, sorry, Yephthah, the book of Judges. Yeah, guess what? You know, this tribe did this or that. They all want to kill each other. They, they, they always fight. So brothers tend to fight. As Solomon points out, brothers are made for strife. That includes two of you boys, so watch yourself, right? Uh, they're ready for strife. Brothers strife, they fight, they bicker, they argue, they beat up, they go back in and they say, okay, let's do it again. <laughs> they do it again. They do join together when they have a common enemy, but when they don't have a common enemy, they tend to, uh, tend to fight. So these nations may not necessarily like each other. That's not a requirement. Didn't say they'll be all good buddy friends, but that does not mean that they will not, uh, uh, that they will despise one another as much as some other nations. So, if I was going to narrow down areas, well, what nations tend to have, a, have an affinity for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Now, mind you, I'm not referring to individual people, not an individual person or their family or their town. I'm referring to a nation as a whole. Uh, generally speaking, the majority of Southeast Asia is not dominated by those who, who focus their attention upon the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and have an affinity for Israel or the nation or the, or the descendants thereof. So the Southeast Asia, I would say, is probably eliminate that off your lists. Though they may have reputations associated with some of these equally true, that may be, that may be I'm not saying they don't, but that's not what Jacob is focusing his attention upon. I would also argue large portions of the continent of Africa, probably, I say large portions, not say all of it, also would not have an affinity for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They have their own religious descendancy and belief systems. So it kind of narrows down to a Middle Eastern base because they have affinity, not all of them. Many of them have associations with Abraham and Ishmael and Esau, which is not the same, but they do have affiliations with those. But they do have at least some association with 
this same God, though not necessarily Jacob. And of course, obviously, yes, the Christian nations, which are inclusive of much of, but not all, of South America, North America, European uh, nations in general, and a few smatterings here and there is pockmarked around within Africa as, as, as well. So there's, there are certain spots here and there of your list of nations. You can decide what they are. It's your business, or you can say, leave it to God. But the point is, all these characteristic traits, well, apparently what Messiah and the people around them, their citizenry or their, their fellow friends, the other nations, will know them for these things when Messiah returns. Now, at the same time, we do not know when that will be. We don't know if it's next year, in a thousand years from now, a hundred thousand years from now. We don't know. We go through our lives and assuming that whatever it will be, it will be when that time comes. So these identifiers that we're looking at may make sense today or may not. I know that when you look at the story writings of Rambam, when he discusses in Rashi, when they discuss these, the, 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 these particular tribal identities, they are unable to determine some of them. They don't know. This does make no sense because in their day, 600, 700 years ago, they didn't have the same identities. Now, granted, some did. Uh, there were some, some nations that they were well established and had these character traits that haven't changed. I mean, for example, well, I shouldn't use, well, I won't cite that example. That's not fair. Anyway, but as of even, even, the, even the pilgrims had issues with some of these nations because they wrote about it. These nations are disgusting about some nations that they, that they interacted with. So these people are pretty rotten. And they had the same characteristics. And they, they said, hey, that's so-and-so. That's so-and-so. They, they even wrote about that topic. Six, 400 years, 500 years ago, they wrote about it. So some nations are apparently well-known for things and have been for a long time and things just haven't changed. But uh, that's the that's Puritans but had their viewpoint. But every nation, every, every group has its own view, has its own uh, uh, book written about, I think it's this or that or this or that or whatever it may be. Either way, when Messiah shows up, that's their identity. This is who these, na- these nations will be known for in both Messiah's viewpoint, Jacob's viewpoint, and the viewpoint of each other. So apparently these nations will have their own viewpoint and have the same viewpoint of each other that is described here by Jacob. So whoever Benjamin is, the Naphtaliites will think that he's Benjamin. They'll say, oh yeah, that's just like you. Or vice versa, Benjamin, yeah, that's just like Zebedee. See, see that history? It, they'll know that they'll have that viewpoint. So this would be their, their, their standard uh, state, the standard business, or standard way of life. Okay. Any questions about the the blessings topic thus far? Because I want to go into deeper into it, unless you have some purpose uh, or, or or specific question about in, any individual uh, group or people groups that Jacob was blessing. The right thing will move forward. <laughs> All right. So in moving forward, we obviously see that Jacob, of course, obviously wants to be buried, after the blessings are done, buried within inside the territory of Canaan. I mentioned before, he made Joseph swear. That got, gave Joseph an out. Oh, sorry, Larry, your hand is up. I didn't notice that. Go ahead, Larry. Well, the, um, the only thing that I know about this recently that, remember I told you that there's been a controversy about, about Apostle Paul? Yes. When we were over there the other day. Well, he came from Benjamin, and there people are using that as 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 fulfilling Christ, uh, Christ's um, thing about uh, coming as a ravening wolf. And they're, they're assigning that to um, to um, to Paul because of he's a Benjamite. 
that's an interesting uh, methodology of if so if much like we do with Samson, when you assign an identity based on a single individual, um, it's risky business in my world. It's my personal world. So when I think of, for example, uh, I don't know of a nation, for example, in, in, in Messiah's, now it says specifically end of days. So we're not referring to end of days from Messiah's here the first time. End of days refers to his second arrival. So regarding to our messianic age, Messiah is in charge of everything and ruling and guiding and instructing along the way. So if we argue the Apostle Paul's fulfillment of this wolf, the predatory wolf thing, I'm not saying he's not. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it isn't true. I think I'm not quite sure if you could argue a single individual is sufficient enough to identify or fulfill this prophecy. Now, you could be. Maybe it is. I don't know. But well, I, 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 I would question it. I think a nation, group, people, groups, or people, group would have to do it. Would it make sense? Go ahead, Larry. Yeah, yeah. I think this is another another case of taking things out of context. Actually, probably that's a fair. Yeah, I, I would say I'm not saying that 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 the Apostle Paul was not a wolf in nature, as a predatory type of ravaging, raiding type of individual, because he did he did that. He did it as an individual person. So I yeah, you, you could argue it was, but I don't think it would be so big. It's not big enough to identify a whole nation, uh, unless of course Paul had a lot of kids, which as far as I know he didn't. He never married, had no children at all, as far as I know. So uh, if he had no children, had no kids, he didn't even go into a nation of his own. His children did not inherit his, his nature. That's right. But, huh? the, but that doesn't necessarily mean that whatever tribes being created king, I know he came, obviously, he was from, from the Roman territory, and he returned to Roman territory in his ministry work. But uh, in this instance, we're just saying nation, the nation itself would have to be known as a whole and known not just by his individuals, but all the other sub-nations around it would recognize this nation has that character straight. We all admit it. We all know that this is what they are. So that, that uh, it, whole nation would group that, in, in my opinion. Uh, uh, Shay, your hand is up. Go ahead. Yeah, unmute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hi, yeah. Sorry about that. Um, yes. Yeah, so two questions. One is, if the tribes are scattered amongst all the nations, when Jesus returns, mm-hmm. how are they going to be identified as a nation if they're scattered among the other nations? So they have to be identified almost like a subculture within a nation. That depends. That's a, it, it's a great question. So we deal with nation and people groups when it, when it discusses within inside, for example, Jacob's uh, discussion here. Um, we can argue, can, is it isolated to individual people groups within inside of a nation or the nation as a whole? And we don't know for certain, so we can't prove one way or the other. Uh, now, what, 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 what gives us a little bit of clue, only a little bit, mind you, a small amount, is a description here given to Joseph. The description given to Joseph is he apparently is, is, is a dominant people group. It actually has a group of people here to being discussed here that his brothers hate or have tried to, to attack, and he's unsuccessful. He's too strong for that. So, I, in, 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 and of course, the blessing that is following upon him, as far as that they're, 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 they would, they would serve, they would serve him over their own, his, his, his own strength would be stronger than them. So, it implies that Joseph, in particular, he apparently appears to be a people group in particular, uh, as far as their, their nation. So, if I, as far as being a, a country or a border of some form, now, if you look, for example, many nations are a mix of people. 
Here's a great example. Belgium. A Belgium is a great example of a mix of, you have French there, you got German there, you got the, there's Swiss there, whole mix of people all jumbled together. Belgium may be a physical border as it actually has a border around it, but by itself, it is not a single people group. So in, in the nature of Belgium, it would not be ab- applicable to say, well, Belgium must be one of the, well, that would be no sense. Uh, now, Belgium's the only nation that's like that. There are also other nations, the, the South American nations, for example, or Central American nations, also are a mix of people groups, a whole bunch of them jumbled together. They, 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 ga- they came together and said, well, we're going to form some nation, some group together. But reality is they're actually not a single ethnic people or even, even two people groups. You need two, three, four, five, five, ten. A whole bunch of them jumbled together. At the same time, there also are some nations that are dominated by a people group, an ethnic group. Mind you, I'm not referring to race here. We're not discussing race. We're not, this is a racist issue. We're saying people groups. Because as the Torah says, if I throw my hat in the ring with people group number one, guess what? I am now people group part of number one. I may be a, 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 a dark-skinned, uh, dark-eyed, white-haired old man, but guess what? If I throw my people group into, I don't know, Sweden, <laughs> I'm now Swedish. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't look like Swedish, but guess what? I'm Swedish. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, so if you, in the Torah, if you throw your hat in the ring with somebody, then you are identifying whether you biologically or not makes no difference whatsoever. You are identifying with that group. You will not be grouped in inheritance with that group. Okay. So even if you have within a given nation, national border, a people group, I set it out, that people group, if you throw your, if that people group has themselves with it to, to that border as I belong to this country, whatever the country may be, wherever it is on earth, whether it's the country of Georgia or Zimbabwe, it makes a difference. You are now assigning yourself as an inheritor and an identifier with that people group. Ezekiel tells us the exact same thing. That this, when you throw your hat in the ring with somebody, you are now permanently, and your descendants there are descendants of that group. Whether you belonged to them originally or not makes no difference. That's immaterial. You throw your hat into it, that's you now belong. That's where your inheritance is. Um, and that's, that's fair, because that would be what somebody wanted to do. You want to do this, then you go ahead and do what you wish to do. That's fine. Okay, my um, second okay, question, really quick. Sorry, yes. is um, why did um, why did Joseph's son get um, so much more than everyone else? And did Jesus come from Joseph's line? So, answer the first question. Well, first of all, the second question. Oh, it's first. Jesus did not come from Joseph's line. Not okay. at all. Uh, all he right. is from the line of Judah, and not only just not not the whole tribe of Judah but actually it's the remnant of the peace of the tribe that came back from the captivity in Babylon. Then they came back, he's from that group. There's a chunk of them okay. stay behind, but he, the, the group that came returned, he's from that line of Judah, has lineage chosen Judah. Joseph and his descendants of Ephraim are not involved in, in the Messiah's line. Now, we obviously have record of, you know, Ruth the Moabitess, she's involved in the line, but she was as a wife of Boaz. And it, it, that, that's, a, that's a, a, a long story that we're not going to book Ruth today. But as far as the other tribes are concerned, he is not a descendant thereof. Let's go back to your first question. Um, uh, so, hold on, let me say your first question again. I forgot half of it. My mind, I saw my mind went off onto this whole descendancy of Messiah. So, your first question again was? 
You unmute yourself. Why did why did Joseph's sons get the double the blessing? It, that was double especially blessing. considering the fact that Jesus is not a part of their right. Okay, line. so thank you for help refresh your memory. I, 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 I <laughs> okay, my mind's a little little, little jumpy at times. Uh, so so double blessing. Okay, so the birthright requirement is the firstborn son gets a double portion of all of the other sons. So for example, my household, I have two sons and I have three daughters. By Torah law, my firstborn son gets twice as much as my second-born son does. My daughters are supposed to inherit with their husbands, so they, they usually aren't supposed to be inheritors of, of, my, of, of my stuff, whatever okay. that's worth. So okay. the daughters are supposed to inherit with their husbands, who get their, who the husbands receive the benefits from their own family. So that's where daughters are supposed to go to, theoretically speaking. So my first-born son, so I have two sons. That means all the possessions we divided into three equal parts. One son gets two parts, one son gets one part. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that so that the, the one son the the, the diminished the, the the younger son would get one in case I have two sons we get one third while the other son gets two thirds of whatever I'm worth when I pass away. Okay, that's Torah law. That's the law which goes for birthright of firstborn sons. Now when it came to Reuben, Reuben was supposed to get that benefit. Now Jacob, of course, had eleven biological eleven twelve eleven biological well, sons. Twelve. 12, 12 biological sons. I get that right. Yeah, because because Joseph has 11 brothers. Yeah, so 12, get the, my number mixed up. So it has 12 biological sons. That means Reuben should get one sixth. Or 12, no, 13. No, double portion. We get double all, all his siblings get. So you divide all our, uh, yeah, well, yeah, the, 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 the two twelfths of it goes to Reuben, one sixth. And then yeah. everybody else gets a twelfth of all the stuff of, of, of Jacob's ownership of possessions, which is his, his animals, his money, uh, not his wife. That's sick. But uh, of his possessions, his slaves too, if you wanted to do slaves, although Torah pro- pro- prohibits transfer of slave ownership from, child, from, from parent to child. That's a different different topic. Um, so, so there's 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 possession to be divided up up that way. Normally, we will receive double ways one sixth of Jacob's possessions as firstborn son. But Reuben screwed up. Pun not intended. Um, he messed up with uh, with jo- with Jacob's concubine or, or the, the mother of two of Reuben's brothers. <laughs> And so Jacob says, okay, Reuben, because you screwed up, you are not going to get your birthright double portion. It will instead go to the firstborn son of Rachel. Now, this is an interesting topic. So we don't necessarily, we can argue an opinion-wise what we think is right or wrong. It doesn't make a difference. So the firstborn son, if you lose it, would only go to the secondborn son. Because the first, the first person, let's pretend he died, okay? He died as a child or whatever. Well, the secondborn son would be, would be the beneficiary of all the, the rights of firstborn. But in this case, Reuben failed, he screwed up. But instead of going to his brother, his younger, the, the next one down, which would be uh, Simeon, uh, it went to the other firstborn son, which is firstborn son of the second wife. In this case, is Rachel. So Rachel, which is which her firstborn son, would be the, the next, the following firstborn son. Because the firstborn who breaks the womb is as the definition of firstborn, not the firstborn of the dads. Firstborn who breaks the womb is firstborn of the mother. So okay. it would go from Reuben, then to Joseph. After Joseph, because firstborn of the, of the preferred wife, which is the actual married wife, it's done in the order of which marriage occurs. And then, okay. uh, was it... Oh, I forgot. And it was uh, Zilpah was the third wife, and Bilhah was. I think they got it right. I think it's 
it's Lay and Rachel. He gets Zilpah's number three and Bill has number four, though. I may have those flipped. I don't remember. Which one is third or fourth? But it would go through that order. It would go through all four wives before it would start going to second-born sons and down the line. So that's how, the, how an inheritance would work as far as Torah is concerned. The first one breaks the womb. So in this instance, so Joseph being the next heir of the, of the recipient of the firstborn status, because it had to skip Reuben and go to the next one with Joseph. So Joseph receives a double portion with all of his brothers. He gets the one-sixth right. The rest of them are reduced down to their standard inheritance. Now, in, in particular, this description here given by Jacob, obviously says that the, the, the blessings, of most of the instructions here or, or description given by Jacob to Joseph appears to dominate in the form of money or blessings in that capacity. More so than its dominance in regards to the to uh, the the God of Israel necessarily being with them. Not saying God isn't with them. So it's dominated, of course, with money when the glory to Joseph. So when it comes to two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, when he crossed his hands and blessed them according to get a double portion. So Joseph's sons will receive Joseph's one sixth portion. Theoretically speaking, he has two sons. Each of the sons will get a 12th, right? That's how we would normally do mathematics. It's pretty simple, right? So Manasseh get one twelfth, like all the other son, brothers do. And Ephraim get one twelfth because Joseph's six was cut in half. But on top of that blessing, separate from each of getting their equal one-sixth value, Jacob had demonstrated that these two tribes, Ephraim, will be more dominant over all the other brothers. Not just this, with his one twelfth equal portion. Now he actually becomes more dominant them over them, more powerful than them. And Manasseh apparently, in his own right, equally not quite the same as, but also equally dominant. Meaning that they're both brothers seem to be fairly dominant over all of them. But Ephraim apparently is a little bit beyond, or bigger than, or more powerful, or more strong, or whatever you call it, than Manasseh was going to be. Um, so these double, this, this blessing of equal rights. So if you didn't do it that way, then Joseph would have only received, let's pretend, let's pretend for a minute, just go back in time, imagine we write history, that Reuben did not sleep with Bilhah. And so he kept his one-sixth value portion. And Joseph comes along, he gets his one-twelfth, as his fair right, because Reuben didn't screw up. Then Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Asa, we each would have to take Joseph's one-twelfth and cut it in half. One gets one twenty fourth, and then one gets one twenty fourth. They are now each boy is now half as valuable as any of the other siblings. So that that is that was not what Jacob wanted to do. He wanted those two boys each to get their own equal share with the brothers. In order to do that, he has to make Joseph firstborn, which he did. Well, God kind of did, in, in matter speaking, with inspiring Reuben to be unstable. Um, and then allowing it to be divided up equally to two boys, they all get one twelfth as a fair as a fair breakdown. And that's how that would dominate or work out in that capacity. I hope it makes sense. So, so the purpose of the double of the portions they got firstborn right status was given to Joseph, so you get a double portion, then split in half to Ephraim and Manasseh, all because Reuben screwed up because the Torah says firstborn gets double portion of all the other brothers. We have the same story in the prodigal son story where Messiah gives. When the product son says, give me my inheritance, I'm taken out of here. I don't have a right to inherit all of the stuff. My older brother does. Well, he can have your stuff. 
give me my one, in this case, there's two brothers, my one third of the value, and I'm taking it out of here. I'm going to go spend it and goof off and do my thing. Until he spends it all, runs out of money, comes back and crawling back to his dad. Okay, dad, I'm starving and half dead. Can I work for you? <laughs> the older brother still gets the balance of what is owned by the father because the younger son just spent his inheritance. He got his one third. He spent it. It's gone. He's not going to get any more, but he still gets a party saying, my son came back. I still love him. He's not going to inherit more but I still love him. So, mm-hmm. it, so we still have the same story or similar reuse from the Sai and the prodigal son parable. That son was, hey, I may have screwed up. I may not be the best, but God still, my dad, God still loves me. He still take care of me. He still want me back. So each of these national tribe, national tribes we do, they have their strengths and some of their weaknesses. But regardless of their strengths and their prodigal son weaknesses, they are still loved by their God. They're still wanted by him. So in regards of, of, of these blessings or cursings in some instances, uh, as far as their identities, they may have their, their failing points, but regardless of their failing points as a people group or as a nation, God still says, you're still mine. I'm not throwing you away. Almighty God, our Father, thank you for your kindness and love upon each of us, Father, for guiding us along our way. Father, please help us to make good decisions in our lives. And whether... <laughs> Whether we screw up or not, Father, we have to trust that you still love us. You're still going to hold on to us. We may burn and spurn our inheritance at times, but remember, Father, we're still yours and we will return. We wish to come back always. Please hold on to us dear to you, Father, for you are our love. You are our guide, our hope, our strength. And grant us peace, Father, to know that you are still in charge in spite of our weaknesses. Grant us strength, also, Father, as we worship with you and, and, and praise you with one another, as we fellowship, Father, that you will guide us in our lives, lives of our children and those whom we care about and love. For you love us more than we love you. And we love you an awful lot. So God, please grant us peace, grant us your patience, and grant us your instructions. We praise you and ask your blessing, Father, in Yeshua's name. Amen. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.